0: Listening to Louisiana Considered here on WWNO and WRKF. I'm Patrick Madden. On the show today, a new photographic exhibition compares the native communities in coastal Louisiana and Alaska. We'll have an interview with the two creators behind the exhibit. But first, we welcome, as always on Fridays, Stephanie Grace, editorial page director and columnist for the Times picayune New Orleans Advocate. And you can always read Stephanie's work at Nola.com. Happy Friday, Stephanie. Happy Friday. Stephanie let's start in New Orleans and the latest with Mayor LaToya Cantrell in your paper today there's a fun conversation between yourself Will Sutton Clancy Dubois where you discuss Cantrell's current predicament a recall campaign violent crime that's making national headlines let alone local ones and just a steady drip drip, drip of mm-hmm. negative press. And the question the three of you try to answer is, can the mayor regain the public's trust? So Give us some of the, the, the takeaways here.
1: Sure. Well, we are a year after, a little over a year after LaToya Cantrell being sworn into her second term, second four-year term. So we've got another three years, unless... The recall is um successful and we're only a couple weeks away from the deadline to know whether that will be the case there's of course a recall drive that's gotten quite a few signatures it needs even more it needs 20 percent of all registered voters and you know they are short of that and the last you know the last group is going to be hardest to get i think but the deadline is Ash Wednesday. So we're gonna go through Mardi Gras and then find out whether we're having a recall election. And of course, the procedure is not that she's out of office, it's that it triggers an election. Um and it's so you know, the question is. Can she survive that? And also, can she really regain the public's trust, I think is the bigger issue, because it, most people think, we all agreed, we think she will get past this recall. That doesn't mean everything's okay. Um, in fact, one of the things I think we're all hearing from people is, even people who don't necessarily support a recall, don't know what would happen, don't know that somebody else would necessarily be that much better. They hope they get she gets the message that people are... Um, not happy on a lot of fronts. And those fronts are, you know, they range from obviously the crime and the state of streets and the fact that street work starts and then it stops inexplicably and, you know, go down the list. Short-term rentals, you know, some of the people she's hired and the personal stuff, the flying first class and on the city dime, the kind of the more salacious part of it where she's spending time at the Pantalpa, which is a city-owned apartment. And there's a, you know, she was kind of, it's suggested in the, with a police officer who's part of her security details suggested in his, by his ex, soon to be ex-wife, I guess, that something's going on there. And that's not, you know, that's private business, but it's also public business. Um, in ways that, you know, kind of how she's spending her time, how she's using city property. And it all goes to this kind of much bigger question of, um, you know, is she kind of too imperious is the way I would put it. I think that's the question we were all getting at, you know, does she get that she's kind of answerable to us? And does she see that? And is she prepared to kind of change her behavior in some ways to more um, to kind of publicly acknowledge that. Um, you know, I think there was a big backlash after she was on Face the Nation a couple of weeks ago as part of a group of mayors for the U.S. Conference of Mayors in Washington. And she really kind of portrayed it. She was asked about the murder rate, still first in the nation. And she said, you know, the first excuse she gave was COVID. It's like, well, that doesn't ring true because everyone had COVID. And she also said, you know, we've turned things around, and I don't think there is, you know, some of the statistics are going down, and that's great, but, you know, it it is not solved. So this didn't really just kind of ring true to a lot of people and honest. And and Stephanie, and this comes up
0: in the uh, discussion in the paper, but the appointment for the next police chief, Mm -hmm. you know, it it seemed almost as a, a proxy battle between the, the council and the mayor, right? Yes. But it also seems like it could be, you know, a way if, you know, the path the, the mayor chooses, you know, whether it's do the national search, which is what the council mm-hmm. is really pushing for, or bring someone from in-house. But it seems like that that could be a, a, a an opportunity for the mayor.
1: Absolutely. I wrote a column at... um around New Year's with kind of predictions. I do this every year. And one of the things I wrote was that the thing that could help her most turn it around is to get a rockstar police chief who who makes a noticeable difference. And this is what happened with Mark Morial. You know, it was his first term when he hired Richard Pennington from Washington. And there is this debate. Does it have to be somebody from outside or not? She has kind of planted her flag somewhat with an internal candidate, Michelle Ward Fork, Um, first woman police chief, first black woman police chief. So a lot of symbolic um, value there and, you know, very well regarded, but doesn't need to be somebody who really just blows things up and really changes the culture in a grand way, or can it be somebody who came up internally? So, you know, that's an interesting debate. And the other interesting debate is what does the council do because they just because of Latoya Cantrell's problems, they kind of just got this authority from voters to oversee your appointments. So this is the first test of that for both of them. Hmm. And, and S-
0: Stephanie, let's turn to the the other big political story happening. That's the governor's race. Um mm-hmm. You know, on the Republican side, we've talked about this. Attorney General Jeff Landry, you know, he's clearly established his candidacy as a front runner. He's in the sort of hard right lane. Right. And there's been a lot of trial balloons floated for perhaps more moderate Republicans, big names like uh, Senators Cassidy, Kennedy, among others, all have eventually said they do not want to run. There's been mm-hmm. one exception. That's Congressman Garrett Graves, who still sounds like he could be on the fence and increasingly, you know, it seems like he's, he doesn't appreciate the state party, Republican Party, telling him to 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 not run.
1: Uh, he definitely does not. Of course, that was Lewis Gervich, who's the chair of the state Republican Party, which cast its lot very early on with Jeff Landry. Hugely controversial move because Landry, again, represents kind of the far right Trumpy constituency. There are a lot of Republicans who like that, but there are a lot of Republicans who don't. And um what happened is Gervich kind of went public and almost criticized Garrett Graves for considering running and, and, you know, letting down the people who sent him to Washington. I don't think Garrett Graves liked that. I think he saw that as trying to preempt him um Last week, he got some key assignments from Kevin McCarthy, the new House speaker. So, you know, there was kind of a feeling, okay, that's, he's made his decision. That's what he's going to do. He has made it clear that he is not, he is going to be the one who will say, and he is still considering it. You know, is he still seriously considering it or is he kind of not wanting to be cornered? I don't know. But he is certainly publicly still considering it. And there are still people who really, really want him to run because they feel like he's the guy who could um, get some Democrats, get some independents, get some Republicans and block a Governor Mm. Landry. All
0: right. Well, that's that's a story we'll be following. Uh, Stephanie Grace, uh, editorial page director, uh, columnist uh, with the Times-Picay New Orleans Advocate. Stephanie, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you very much.
0: And you're listening to Louisiana Considered on WWNL and WRKF. And I'm Patrick Madden. Now through February 24th at the Cary Siraj Community Arts Center in Baton Rouge is Preserving... Our Place, a photographic exhibition. This display offers visual art from Native communities in coastal South Louisiana and coastal Far West Alaska. The images attest to the climate tragedies of the artist's Native homes. WRKF's Adam Voss spoke with the artists as they compared and contrasted their images. Here is his conversation with Chantel Camardel, tribal executive secretary of the Jean Charles Choctaw Nation and co creator of the exhibit, and Dennis Davis, community artist of the native Inupiaq village of uh, Shishmaruf, Alaska.
2: Chantel, I want to give this first question to you because you are co-curator of this exhibit. Can you explain for us the theme of the exhibit and what we'll see here?
3: Yeah, so so we are just together sharing our stories of our communities that are facing climate issues right now. So both Shishmaref and the Island of St. Charles um, are heavily um, on the front lines dealing with climate change, sea level rise permafrost melting Um, and in spite of all that we still both of our communities and our people are finding a way to live and finding ways to still express our culture and honor our culture and preserve whatever means of our uh, ancestors have left us for generations so we're finding the beauty and the the beauty in the the knowledge that our ancestors left us our indigenous knowledge and finding ways to combat climate change and, and still live and survive.
4: Dennis, tell me about some of the imagery that we'll see at the exhibit. <clears throat> so some of the images you'll see of my village is like the, the erosion of the roads. You'll see some of the racks where we prepare our, our food for the winter is washing away. Then you'll see some pictures of just in general life in the village where I come from in Alaska.
2: So Alaska and Louisiana, even knowing that we're talking about coastal areas in both cases, to the casual listener, they might still seem like very different places, different environments with really divergent concerns. How much is that the case or isn't that the case, Chantel?
3: So ironically, we're fighting different battles, but it's the same war. So they're fighting the permafrost melting and eroding away. We're fighting decided sea level rise from that permafrost melting and um decided from the Mississippi River but um but ironically when we sat down a few times and and talked it, it's the same it's the same battle it's, it's fighting to to have food security it's fighting to to keep your your home that everything that you've ever known together and intact and it's finding ways to To deal with the the loss and trauma that's going along with it, worlds apart. And um, we actually, I've actually had discussions with other coastal um, tribes in the northwest, in Oregon and Washington State, and they're all fighting the same issue, just on a different different level. But we're, we're, it's the same fight. It's the same war we're fighting, and we're just. We're hoping that this exhibit brings faith and recognition to that war that we are fighting now. But eventually, all inland cities will be fighting in that war as well against climate and environmental changes.
2: Dennis, what visual cues do you use to tie together the environmental concerns from both coastal regions that they might have in common? Are there some mutual or shared visual indications from both South Louisiana and far western Alaska that you can that you can photograph and show people.
4: Well, I mean, just the whole the whole principle of like erosion, you know, our village eroding away, the water rising, and just the fact that they're having the same problems as us, like with the subsistence lifestyle, because we live a, a, a subsistence lifestyle in the village. We live off the land and live off the ocean, and they're having the same problems there as we're having in Alaska. And if we're having it there and they're having it here, then, you know, it's just people need to start, start thinking that this is real, it's, it's happening, it's gonna happen really fast.
2: Subsistence that has to do with food and materials. What are some examples of things that are threatened by
4: climate change? So the salmon is, is getting threatened, the, the seals, we eat seals and whales and, and stuff like that from the ocean. And also like the caribou and the moose and everything that's on the land is also getting affected because of everything comes from the ocean one way or another.
2: And Chantel, what visual cues or images are you presenting that that might relate to what Dennis is sharing about a subsistence lifestyle and living off the land? So in several
3: of the images, we have our seafood industry here that, um, has so greatly been impacted by the environmental changes, man-made and natural. We've had the BPO spill, we've had hurricanes, um, the saltwater intrusion, and, and changing the the chemistry of the water in the in the estuary area here. But I think one um, one thing that stands out to me that is in our images of our island and and Dennis is the people. We all have the next generation that's coming up and how are we leaving that generation? What, what state are we leaving our land in for that next generation? And we are trying to preserve as much as we can and from our generation to give to the next generation so that they can keep giving it to the next.
2: We're speaking with Chantel Commardel, tribal executive secretary of the John Charles Choctaw Nation artist and co curator of the exhibit that we're talking about on display right now at the karis Raz Community Center in Baton Rouge. We're also speaking with Dennis Davis, a community artist with the native Inupiaq village of Shishmaref, Alaska. Dennis, tell me about the focus specifically on native communities. Rather than simply focusing on the coastal environments in question, the artwork focuses on the native communities. Can you tell me about that?
4: Well, it's, it, you know, it's not only Shishmaref that's getting affected. It's basically all the the small communities along the coast of Alaska that's that's seeing the same problems, you know, with the ocean, the ocean rising due to the warming. The other thing that we're having there, too, is like this algae bloom, like the, what is it? The, it's almost like red tide, I mm-hmm. think is what they call it. But it's it's happening more out in the ocean because the ocean's warming up. To where it can do that. And just trying to give, you know, let people know, like, what's happening there. Because it's, the way I really look at it is, like, we're out of sight, out of mind. Mm -hmm. Because we're, where I come from, it's like a village of, like, 700 people. We're in Louisiana right now. And I don't see why they're having a hard time. Like, we're having a hard time where everything's accessible to Louisiana. Mm -hmm. A lot easier than Alaska, so you know, just trying to help our, help our people out, you know.
2: Chantel, do you see some of the same challenges as far as awareness? We hear a lot about climate change in South Louisiana, but the focus on Native communities.
3: Yeah, that that is a surprising similarity that we do have. You know, historically, Native people were pushed um, out of their ancestral homeland further and further west, and the... Here in Louisiana specifically, they were pushed further and further into the wetlands. And so that's where they, they ended up settling, is along the coast, majority of them in here in South, Southeast Louisiana. And for that reason, they are the, the land that we were on is, was considered uninhabitable land by the government in the early 1800s. So that's why they had no problem letting the Native Americans live along the coast. But at the same time, they still have no problem letting it go away because it's not affecting the main population. It's just affecting um, the, the Native Americans, the marginalized communities. And it's not just Natives, you're correct, that are dealing with this. It's other minority groups that are just struggling to get um, support of every aspect. And we're just trying to bring attention to that. But, you know, it is environmental justice should be equal across all races, but it is not at the moment.
2: So you're holding a reception on Saturday evening. What conversations do you hope to have with Louisianans about the art and about the environmental issues that the art brings to our attention?
4: You know, I just basically want to just figure out how or just just have conversation with just anybody like what what's basically going on? you know, what's happening there, what's happening here. And if anybody has any questions, I'd love to answer them and then just, you know, share our story too. So, Chantel, what do you hope people will take away from the exhibit?
3: I hope we can reach new people. So we talk a lot about climate change in academics, in um, political arenas, but we don't realize that, Climate change doesn't just affect the land, the the amount of productivity the land has. It affects communities at all levels. It it affects the education. We recently had our community school closed due to lack of participation in the school system because people migrating off out of the area. So it affects not just where you live. It affects every aspect of your life and art isn't um
2: immune to that and dennis we're also talking about art here can you tell me what you think it is about an image photography which is part of this exhibit that communicates something about coastal awareness that simply reading about it in the news might not
4: well it's like that saying like a, a picture's worth a thousand words you know you I I tend to try and figure out like the best, the best picture I can take, but to not show too much of the bad, just enough to let you feel like what it's what we're going through. You know, like what I'm feeling is like what I'm putting into the picture, Mm -hmm. you know, so that way I hopefully get so hopefully the people can understand like what I'm going through when I'm taking the picture but not too much misery in one frame. Yeah, not too much misery in one frame because you don't want to just lose, you don't want to lose the audience. You know what I mean? You just want to get them just enough, give them just enough so they can keep on going and just see more. Dennis Davis, community artist of the native Inupiaq village of
2: Shishmaref, Alaska. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for having us. And Chantal Camardelle is tribal executive secretary of the Jean Charles Choctaw Nation, is an artist and co-curator of this exhibit. Chantel, thank you for your time today.
3: Thank you so much.
0: And you're listening to Louisiana Considered here on WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge. I'm Patrick Madden. In 2020, Mardi Gras was the launching point for a surge in COVID-19 cases throughout the Gulf South. And this year, there's more in the air, like flu and RSV. Gulf States newsroom reporter Shalina Chatlani spoke with health officials about what to expect this year and how to stay safe.
5: Mardi Gras in New Orleans is a recipe for fun. But the tightly packed crowds also make it an easy place to catch a respiratory virus like COVID-19 the flu, or RSV.
3: The good news is we've probably hit the peak
5: for all three, both nationally and statewide. That's New Orleans Health Officer Dr. Jennifer Avegno. She says the surge in cases for those three viruses happened earlier than expected this season. That being said, I wouldn't be surprised if we had a bump in infectious diseases of a variety of types after Mardi Gras because that wouldn't be unusual. This particular strain of COVID-19 is spreading rapidly. New Orleans has a high vaccination rate, but Tulane University epidemiologist Susan Hassig says that being vaccinated won't necessarily stop you from getting sick.
1: So it can still knock you on your back for a week, and you can feel pretty miserable, even if you're under 30.
5: Avegno and Hassig say people should get tested, stay home if they are sick, and try to mask up inside crowded areas. And since hospital systems are understaffed, try options outside the emergency department if there's an injury that's not too serious. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Shalina Chutlani.
0: And from WWNO New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered I'm Patrick Madden. I want to thank our earlier guests. Stephanie Grace, we also heard a great conversation that was hosted by Adam Voss, and we just heard uh, a report from the Gulf States newsroom. Today's episode of Louisiana Considered was uh, produced by Alana Schreiber. Our digital editor is Caitlin Umholtz, and our engineer today was Garrett Pittman. You can always listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7.30 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. And Louisiana Considered wants to hear from you. Please fill out our pitch line to let us know what kind of story ideas you have for our show. And while you're at it, you can fill out our listener survey. We want to keep bringing you the kinds of conversations that you would like to listen to. Louisiana Considered is made possible with support from our listeners. Thank you. I'm Patrick Madden. You can always uh, follow the news from NPR and from our newsroom by going to our websites at www.wno.org and wrkf.org. You can also check out our Louisiana Considered page and look at today's episode and also look at episodes from the past. Or again, you can go to your favorite podcast player and download the episodes. Thanks again for listening to Louisiana Considered. Have a great weekend.
1: Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience. More at rouses.com with additional support from the Sazerac House.